People have asked if there is a book coming out. Yes, there is. It's entitled The Theology of B.B. Warfield, becoming from Crossway in September. It'd be very nice if each of you would buy 10 copies. <laughs> it's, it's my book, yeah. <laughs> All right, I decided for this session to take one of the theological themes that Warfield treats and highlight his exposition of that doctrine. So I've chosen uh, the doctrine of predestination. Predestination, providence, and the divine decree. I mentioned the last session that the 19th century was marked by a distinctly optimistic tone. Not until after the First World War did its slogan begin to lose credibility. Every day and in every way we are getting better and better. It was a day of advance in every conceivable field of learning, resulting in realized betterment of the individual and society in many ways. Bluntly put, we just didn't need God as much as we used to. So with all of this came a pantheizing tendency in modern theology that minimized ideas of God's transcendence and his active government over the world. The Presbyterian Church in the 1890s witnessed sustained calls for a revision of the Westminster Confession and at issue, among other matters, was its doctrine of the divine decree. Such historic articles of theology just did not fit well with the optimism of the day. Letcher captures the atmosphere well when he writes, Men could not forever bow as wretched sinners on Sunday and swell with confidence, self-confidence the other six days of the week. The historic doctrine of God's sovereignty had come on bad times, and out of deep commitment to it, Warfield addressed the issue at considerable length. And by way of explication of the doctrine, Warfield often makes reference to the varying conceptions of God, deistic, pantheistic, and theistic, a matter of formative significance in the discussion of the decree. Deism acknowledges God as creator, but denies his continued imminence in the creation. He endowed all the elements with their respective powers, but he is but the first and only remote cause of events. God is transcendent and not directly involved in his creation. Whatever his involvement, events are to be explained only in terms of second causes. Deism involves a mechanical conception of the universe. Warfield says, God has a machine, has made this machine, and just because it is a good machine, it can leave it to work itself out. Not its end, but his ends, but it is still a machine. That's the deistic view. Because deism represents God in such remote terms, disallowing personal involvement in the affairs of the world, Warfield sometimes describes deism as a natural religion. Pantheism is the polar opposite, identifying God with the universe as the form in which he exists, or at least so confines him to it as to deny his transcendence beyond the universe as an extra mundane spirit and conscious person whose actions are rationally determined, uh, whose actions are rationally determined volitions. For the pantheist, God is merely an impersonal diffused force. Christian theism stands between these two extremes and insists on both the transcendence of God beyond and above the world and imminence of God within the world. God is a conscious personal spirit who acts sovereignly and according to purpose. He ordinarily works by means of second causes, but he remains free always to intrude, whether miraculously or by means of second causes, to do the extraordinary. Transcendent, he rules over the universe, yet always imminent within it penetrating even the innermost being of the very element of every creature with the infinite energies of his free intelligent will and working through them always to his own purpose and glory. It's a virtual given for Warfield that God's decree is singular and all-inclusive and that his providence is overall. This conviction is bound up with the very notion of his godhood. If God is a personal being, then he acts in all things according to purpose. And if he is almighty, God over all, then all that is has come about by his purpose. He rules the universe teleologically with a goal, with a purpose. 
God often repeats, or Warfield often repeats that all this is simply the first postulate of true theism. Over against naturalism, which looks to the laws of nature as deciding the course of events in the world. Over against deism, which denies the continued eminence of the creator in the creation and the consequent immediate dependence of the creature on the creator. And over against pantheism, which at least practically denies his transcendence and identifies the universe as God's existence form. Theism offers and emphasize, affirms and emphasizes that God is both infinitely transcendent beyond the creation and imminent within it. The necessary corollary of this is that God is the almighty overall and stands behind all that is, ordering it all according to his own eternal wise and good purpose. The world's history with all its complexity of events is, in words borrowed from Charles Hodge, not the result of accident or chance, nor yet of, necess of necessity or fate, nor of human caprice or satanic malice, but the orderly working out of the purpose of our Father in heaven, the infinitely wise and holy one. This Warfield says is the essence of theism, the very basis of prayer, the whole foundation of order in the universe. In all things, God acts with his own purpose in view. Once again, this is simply the fundamental presupposition of consistent theism. Warfield insists that scripture is full of predestination precisely because it's full of God. And when we say God, we've said predestination. The fundamental conception of God throughout all of the Old Testament and the two most persistently emphasized elements in that conception of God are his almighty power and his personality. Before everything else, Warfield insists, the God of Israel is the omnipotent person. This exalted majesty of the all-powerful person of God lies at the very core of the Old Testament idea of God. The biblical writers further employ varied terminology that makes explicit God's causative relation to all that is. Words and phrases such as elect, chose, ordained, predestined, appointed before, determined before, and foreordained are common to every translation of the Bible, reflect a very Widely, uh, a wide variety of Hebrew and Greek vocabulary and render the concept of God's all-inclusive decree and providence familiar to every reader of the scriptures. But more fundamentally than just this terminology, throughout the Bible, throughout the biblical narrative, the underlying conscious assumption of the narrators is that in all of his dealings with men, God the creator rules over everything that he has made, directing it in every detail to his own ends. The varied terminology of predestination is impressive and telling, but by itself it cannot convey the, adequately the vivid awareness in the minds of the biblical writers of God's all-inclusive providence that is displayed in their narrative of God's dealings with men. For Warfield, just a cursory glance over this narrative makes the Bible's fundamental assumption of God's all-pervasive sovereign direction plain. And he emphasizes that what the biblical writers convey in simple is simple I'm sorry, is simply a pure and consistent theism. Moreover, if God made the universe for himself, then he must be supposed to have made it precisely to suit himself. He surely did not make a universe he did not wish to have. He made the universe as he was pleased to make it. He, did not, he is not left to put up with the best he could do. A being who cannot make a universe to his own liking is not God. And similarly, a being who can agree to make a universe which is not to his liking most certainly is not God. Warfield scoffingly calls such, a, calls such a being a godling who no longer God must put up with the universe as it is rather than as he would have it. All this is nonsense. It, it is necessary from the very notion of godhood that God controls in entirety all that he has made. Orfield argues further, if God were not in absolute control of all things, not only would he then cease to be God, he would be immoral. It would be an irresponsibly immoral act were God to make anything that he could not or would not control. To perpetuate chaos is an immoral act and to conceive of such, uh, of such God as creating a universe or single being that he could not or would not control would be to dethrone him and demoralize him. 
As God and as the kind of God he is, he necessarily controls all things. Once more, if God controls all that he has made, then he intended to control it and controls it according to his purpose. We could not imagine a God who acts willy-nilly, spur the moment, without intention. God created and rules over all things as he pleases and according to his own design. This, God acting according to intention, very simply, is the biblical doctrine of God's all-inclusive predestinating decree. Warfield argues exegetically as well as theologically. Here he surveys the Old Testament narrative of God's dealings with men, and he observes that God is continuously conceived of and portrayed as the almighty maker and irresistible ruler of all that he has made. The inspired writers maintain such a vivid sense of his of dependence upon God that they rarely speak abstractly of the rain or famines and such. It is rather God who sends the rain, God who sends the famine, God who sends the wind and has his way in it, God who hurls the lightning to strike its intended mark, God who opens the womb, God who closes the womb, God who gives prosperity, God who gives calamity, God who directs the feet of men and even creates the thoughts and intents of the soul. And it is God who opens the heart, God who hardens the hearts, even the seemingly chance happening, the occasional, it happened that, like in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 3, is not conceived as apart from God's direction and provision. Indeed, even the lot was understood to be at his disposal. All of heaven and earth are seen as the instruments of his hands, working out his irresistible purpose. All things, without exception, indeed, are disposed by him. Nations, nature, individual experiences, all alike are the disposition of his will. He is the free determiner of all that comes to pass in the world. So pervasive and so specific is this kind of language about God, Warfield says, that an appearance is sometimes created as if everything that comes to pass were so ascribed to his immediate production as to exclude the real activity of second causes. Orfield insists, however, it'd be a mistake, and a serious mistake, to forget that God does indeed employ second causes. But his point there is interesting, that God's description of God in the Old Testament narrative of sending everything that comes is so complete that we could be left with that impression. Similarly, the created order acts according to consistent laws of nature. But here again, these are not conceived as independent of God. They are rather the instruments of his will. God has prescribed the laws by which nature functions, and he's the governor over even the hearts of men. Nor is his providence a blind force similar to pantheistic thought. That would be to forget his personhood. God is at work in and by means of all that is, directing all things to accomplish his all-inclusive and perfect plan. It is evident on the very face of the pages of the Old Testament that this is the world in which the biblical writers live and think. It is from this conscious awareness of God working in and through all things that the biblical writers so repeatedly and consistently reflect such a vivid sense of absolute dependence upon God. And it's due to this consciousness that faith or trust becomes the keynote of piety. Standing over against God, not merely as creatures, but as sinners, the Old Testament saints found no ground of hope save in the free initiative of divine love. Accordingly, self-sufficiency is the characteristic mark of the wicked. The very heart of godliness is trust in God and his sovereign distribution of mercy. In the entire self-commitment to God, humble dependence on him for all blessings, which is the very core of the Old Testament religion, no element is more central than the profound conviction embodied in it of the free sovereignty of God in the distribution of his mercies. The whole training of Israel was directed to impressing upon it the great lesson enunciated to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Accordingly, 
the establishment of the kingdom of God is consistently represented in the Old Testament, not as the product of man's efforts in seeking God, but as the gracious creation of God himself. Its inception as well as its development and accomplishment are due to God working in free grace in all things to the fulfillment of his loving purpose to restore fallen man to fellowship with himself. All throughout, it is God at work. He makes the covenant promise. He preserves the race from destruction in the flood. And he chooses a man and a family through whom he will bring about his gracious purpose. At every step, it is God and God alone to whom is ascribed the initiative. And throughout, the recipients of his favor are reminded that it is not their work or will that has given rise to his free and gracious provision. Israel is emphatically not a people of their own making, but a people that God has formed that they might set forth his praise. It is in the complex details of the lives of the patriarchs. It is not their own experiences that stand out as most significant. The real plot of the story, Warfield says, the real plot of the story is the advance by them of God's purpose. And so in every historical event. <clears throat> The New Testament presentation of the doctrine of predestination follows in the same vein, with the additional emphasis on God's fatherhood. God is the great king and lord of heaven and earth, who does all his pleasure, whose throne is in the heavens, with the earth as his footstool, whose power knows no limitation, whether on the score of difficulty in the task or insignificance of the object. He rules and directs the rain, the flowers, the field, the birds of the air, the falling sparrow, and even the very hairs of our head. In the minutest details of the course of the world's history, God is directing all things toward his appointed goal in the world to come. It is impossible not to think that if God presides over even the falling of the sparrow, then his providence is over everything in the most ex extensive detail. So also in the larger picture, the advance of the nascent church in the book of Acts, for example, is traced to its heavenly origin in the promise and bestowal of the Holy Spirit, in whose power the gospel made its promised and therefore inevitable progress. And in the book of Revelation also, the curtain is pulled back for us to see from heaven's perspective that history is but the unfolding of the divine purpose and will. Warfield considers it important in this connection to distinguish the relation between the divine purpose and foreknowledge. The understanding of the biblical writers is emphatically not that God works to accomplish his plan through all that he foresees will happen. The ground of God's knowledge is not his foresight. The ground of his knowledge is himself. His decree is not grounded in his perfect understanding of all the causes in operation, as though he were enabled by this foresight to calculate and forecast the outcome of events. Such a notion would be entirely contradictory to the biblical writer's conception of the almighty, all-sovereign ruler of the universe. This would be to render God contingent and dethrone him as the governor of the, of the universe and no longer God, making him ruled by rather than ruler of the course of events. God's purpose and works are not contingent on his foreknowledge, rather this foreknowledge is dependent upon the divine purpose. In the biblical conception, God foreknows only because he has predetermined. This foreknowledge is grounded in his purpose and is at bottom merely a knowledge of his own will. And, he, his, and his works of providence are merely the execution of his all-embracing plan. It is his will that is the real ultimate ground of the futurition of events. Warfield commends the Westminster Confession in this regard with its affirmation, not only that God knows the future exhaustively, but that he knows the whole range of possibilities growing out of all supposable conditions. Accordingly, Warfield represents the Hebrew sages in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament as conceiving of God as eternally contemplating all possibilities and again in keeping with the purity of their theism as predetermining everything that comes to pass in, according, in accord with his wise and all-embracing purpose. Next, problems and objections to the doctrine of predestination. This understanding of, of God's foreknowledge and purpose reflects no discomfort with the notion of human freedom. Warfield treats this matter in two steps. First, 
God's foreknowledge of the actions of free human agents indeed implies the certainty of those actions. Let me say that again. God's foreknowledge of the actions of free human agent indeed implies the certainty of those actions. But it does not in any way impinge on human freedom any more than his knowledge of his own actions or choices impinges on his freedom. Warfield marvels that the Arminian John Miley can see this about God, but somehow cannot see that God's foreknowledge of his own free choices surely implies his forintention of those same choices, which is just the doctrine of predestination. Then he concludes that if this much is granted, there remains no objection to God's forintention of human, human free choices. God orders even the free choices of men. Second, Warfield simply notes that throughout the whole Old Testament, there is never the least doubt expressed of the freedom or moral responsibility of man. There was no question at all in the minds of the biblical writers that men were free agents, and it was on this ground that they were held responsible. But at the same time, the biblical writers supremely believed God to be free. And because God is free, he is never hampered or limited in the attainment of his goals. Just how he thus governs over the free acts of men in the pursuit of his purpose is a subject the biblical writers scarcely address. But that he governs men, even in their most intimate thoughts and feelings and impulses, is their unvarying assumption. Nor does the moral quality of the action in question present any difficulty or exception to God's all-inclusive rule. It is never the case that God is the author of sin, and he is in no way implicated by the sinfulness of men's misuse of their creaturely freedom. He is always the Holy One who is entirely separate from sin, and the blame for sin always remains on the sinner himself. Yet, God's relation to the sinful acts is not purely passive. His involvement is not that of mere allowance. The biblical writers are the biblical writers are nowhere embarrassed to maintain God's rule over all things, even sinful things. God presides over the course of history, sin included. And because of this, there is a sense in which we may say with Augustine, O beata culpa, that is, O beautiful fault, a phrase that Augustine used because of the fall, which was, became then the occasion of God showing his grace. For even sin is used by God to accomplish his purpose and display his glory. It's in the doctrine of concurrence that Warfield unravels this tension. All that happens, good or evil, stems from God's positive ordering of it. But the moral quality of the deed itself is rooted in the moral character of the person who does it. Even evil actions trace back to God's all-embracing decree. He hardens hearts. He sends evil spirits to trouble sinners, and from him sinful impulses take their shape. 2 Samuel 24, 1. Yet he is not the immediate cause of all that comes to pass. This would be pantheism. Evil men and evil spirits do what is evil because they themselves are evil, and they therefore receive the blame and carry the guilt. But in it all, God remains God over all, acting and ordering according to his own purpose, so that no evil comes to pass apart from his wise providence that orders all things for the highest good and that directs all that is to return to his own praise. Against the objection that it would be inconsistent with divine goodness to create souls whose ultimate destruction is foreseen, Warfield argues that to attribute ignorance to God on this score would not avoid the problem creation of souls with the known possibility of loss leaves God open to the same charge. For that matter, God's continuance of the human race after such numerous losses had occurred would likewise leave the same dilemma. Unless foreknowledge be denied altogether, we are left to see that God created souls knowing that some would be lost. But to say this much is to say also that God intended to create souls that would be lost. The problem is not a Calvinist problem only. This is the problem that all Christians must face. And so Warfield sees only two options. Deny foreknowledge altogether, in which case God is no longer God, or admit the Calvinistic and biblical doctrine of predestination. 
Evil has come into the world then in keeping with God's all-inclusive decree. God knows all that is and all that will be, but this foreknowledge with its necessary corollary for intention impinges neither on human freedom nor on human responsibility. Nor does this reflect poorly on God, so long as it is under, understood that in his decree, God had in view an end great and glorious enough to justify the evil involved in his plan. I think I will... I think I will take the time to give you his presentation of the plan of salvation. As something of an aside, it might be helpful at least to glance quickly at Warfield's 1915 book, The Plan of Salvation. Here Warfield examines the various views offered within Christendom concerning the order and outworking of the decrees of God concerning human salvation. He repeats his frequent emphasis that if God is a person, then he by definition acts according to purpose, for purpose is essential to personhood. So also then in salvation, even the deist must acknowledge that God acts according to plan, even if in that system God's plan is carried out in a mere mechanical fashion. In the deist's, in the deist's conception, salvation is not by chance, but neither is it by the immediate workings of a personal deity. But if we grant the theistic concept, uh, conception of God, that he is a personal being who maintains immediately, immediate control over his creation, then we're forced to acknowledge that he acts according to plan in human salvation. The question here, then, has to do with the nature of that plan. And here there are widely differing opinions within professing Christendom. First, then, naturalism, or what he calls autosoterism, Naturalism versus supernaturalism. The question of naturalism versus supernaturalism was, was in many respects the defining question of Warfield's day. And he saw this principle at work not only in such discussions as inspiration and incarnation, he saw it as the defining issue in soteriology also. Either God saves us or we save ourselves. That salvation is from God is the belief universally held by all professing Christians. That salvation comes from ourselves is the universal doctrine of heathenism. It is this understanding that prompted Jerome to describe Pelagianism, the first autosoteric scheme to arise in the church, as the heresy of Pythagoras and Zeno. Pelagius built his system on the assumption of the full ability and unaided of, of the unaided human will to do what God requires. The principle that human obligation implies human ability, so that in the end man has saved himself. He has within him all the necessary powers. The effect of fall was but that of a bad example. Humanity is not itself scarred from it. Man is able to be without sin, and he's able to keep the commandments of God, said Pelagius. At every moment, every man is fully able to cease from all sinning and to continue on in perfection. For the Pelagian, grace is but the endowment to man of this inalienable freedom of will and the divine inducement to use his freedom for good. Additionally, God has, has given the law and the gospel to illumination and persuasion. And he has given Christ to supply an expiation for past sins for all who will do righteousness, and especially to set a good example. Those who submit to these inducements and exercise their freedom, cease from sinning and do righteousness, are accepted by God as righteous and will be rewarded for their good works. Such a system which casts man back on his native powers, as Warfield says it, Warfield insists, and is not properly a religion at all, but just a system of ethics, such a religion is fitted only for the righteous who need no salvation. Augustinian triumphed over Pelagianism and its stepchild semi-Pelagianism and insisted that it is God alone who saves. Not some, but all power exerted in saving the human soul is from God. But of course, this triumph was only formal. For while the church officially acknowledged both the necessity and the proveniency of grace, it refused to acknowledge and in fact denied the efficacy of grace. Thus, the downward pull of synergism prevailed, and despite its official condemnation by the church, semi-Pelagianism dominated the church of the Middle Ages. In Luther and in Calvin, Augustinianism found new champions, 
To Luther, Pelagianism was the heresy of heresies, equal to unbelief itself. To Luther and Calvin alike, it was but the fodder which fed human pride, filling men with an overweening opinion of their own virtue, swelling them out with vanity, and leaving no room for grace and assistance of the Holy Spirit. But in Luther's very successor, Philip Melanchthon, the old leaven of self-salvation began to make its way back. In time, even Reformed churches began to draw back and rationalistic notions of freedom of the will and human independence began to gain precedence. God saves, but he does so merely by keeping the way of salvation open for those who exercise their free will aright. Warfield wonders if such can properly be called salvation at all. He further wonders whether a gospel that is contingent on human will can be good news to anyone, for the will is precisely the problem. It is diseased and hostile against God. Indeed, it is dead, for the sinner who knows himself to be a sinner and knows what it is to be a sinner, not a whosoever will gospel, but only a God will gospel will suffice. If the only gospel that can be given to men with a dead and sinful will is merely a whosoever will gospel, who then can be saved? And so he says autosoterism or naturalism is just a dream which cannot save at all. Warfield cites Spurgeon approvingly, if there be but one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness which we ourselves are to put in it, we are lost. It is God who saves sinners. Christianity is not a naturalistic self-help scheme. It is a divine and supernaturalistic through and through. And so, if we are theists, we must be supernaturalists in our soteriology. Salvation is a work of God. Now, sacerdotalism versus evangelicalism. Among supernaturalists, significant differences of opinion remain. Most fundamentally, the division between sacerdotalism and evangelicalism. Both are supernaturalists in that they both acknowledge that all the power exerted in saving the soul is from God. The difference between them lies in the manner in which the divine power is brought to the human soul, whether immediately or by means of supernaturally endowed instrumentalities, the church and the sacraments. The pointed issue is the immediacy of God's saving activity. Does God save men by immediate operations of his grace on their soul? Or does he act upon them only through the medium of instrumentalities established for that purpose? Evangelicalism preserves the notion of pure and consistent supernaturalism that sweeps away every intermediary between the soul and its God and leaves the soul dependent for its salvation on God alone, operating upon it by its, his immediate grace. The evangelical directs the sinner in need of salvation to look to God himself for grace rather than to any means of grace. His whole hope is that God the Holy Spirit is actually operative where and when and how he will. It is God alone that saves. This evangelicalism is simply Protestantism. The greatest defect of the sacerdotal conception of the plan of salvation, best represented by the Church of Rome, is that it places sinners in the hands of men rather than the hands of a merciful God. Rather than being directed to God, we are instead referred to an institution. According to the sacerdotal scheme, God desires the salvation of all men and has made adequate provision for the salvation of all men by means of the church and its sacraments. But the actual distribution of grace is performed at the hands of the church. And apart from the church, there can be no salvation at all. But all this is a very small step away from naturalism. Still, it is salvation at the hands of men. By this system, direct contact with and immediately immediate dependence upon God the Holy Spirit is replaced by a body of instrumentalities on which it tempts the soul to depend and it thus betrays the soul into a mechanical conception of salvation. To understand sacerdotalism rightly, the following three observations must be kept in view. First, 
In this system, the church has taken the place of the Holy Spirit, and the Christian, therefore, loses all the joy and power which come from conscious, direct communion with God. It makes every difference to the religious life and every difference to the comfort and assurance of the religious hope, whether we are consciously dependent upon instrumentalities of grace or upon God the Lord himself, experienced as personally present to our souls, working salvation in his loving grace." We have here clearly two very different types of piety. One fostered by a dependence upon instrumentalities of grace and one fostered by a conscious communion with God as a personal savior. The Protestant rejection of sacerdotalism is in the interest of vital religion and this repudiation constitutes the very essence of evangelicalism. Precisely what evangelical religion means is the immediate dependence of the soul on God and on God alone for salvation. Second, sacerdotalism neglects the personality of God the Holy Spirit and treats him as if he were a mere force. The church describes itself as a storehouse of salvation as though salvation were a commodity which could be stored and dispensed at its will. It would probably be no exaggeration to say that no heresy could be more gross than the heresy which conceives the operations of God the Holy Spirit under the forms of the action of an impersonal natural force. And yet it is quite obvious that at bottom this is the conception which underlies the sacerdotal system. The church, the means of grace, contain in them the Holy Spirit as a salvation working power which operates whenever and wherever it we can scarcely say he is applied. Third, this system subjects the Holy Spirit in his gracious operations of salvation to the control of men. Rather than viewing the means of grace as instruments which the Holy Spirit uses in working salvation, the Holy Spirit has made an instrument of the church, an instrument which the church, the means of grace, puts to use in working salvation. The initiative belongs to the church, and the Holy Spirit is placed at the church's disposal. Until the church puts him to work, he waits for permission. This degrading concept of the Spirit of God and his saving work is not worthy of religion, and Warfield dismisses it out of hand. Pure sacerdotalism is most clearly represented in the Roman Catholic Church, which presents itself as the institution of salvation, through which alone salvation is uh, conveyed to men. Saving grace is exclusively administered by the church. Where the church is, there is the spirit. Outside the church, there is no salvation. But sacerdotal theology is not restricted to the church of Rome. The church of England teaches in striking similar terms, and the confessional Lutheranism continues it in a modified form. Still, there is something standing between the sinner and his saving God. The evangelical contradiction of sacerdotalism, then, is merely a consistent denial of naturalism. Its insistence on supernaturalism drives it to put its sole trust in God alone and refuse to admit any intermediaries between the soul and God as the sole source of salvation. It is only a true evangelicalism which sounds clearly the double confession that all the power exerted in the saving the soul is from God and that God in his saving operations acts directly upon the soul. Thus, if theism, then supernaturalism, and if supernaturalism, then evangelicalism. The evangelical note of individual and in immediate dependence upon God alone for salvation is formally sounded by the whole of Protestantism, and it is this note that shapes its piety. Protestant piety is individualistic to the core and depends for its support on an intense conviction that God the Lord deals with each sinful soul directly and for itself. In odd yet obvious contradiction to this basic conviction, however, there exists within Protestantism a widespread tendency to explain God's saving activities in universal rather than individual terms. So here he deals with universalism versus particularism. The work which God does in salvation according to these universalistic interpretations, he does for all men alike, making no distinctions. This is the position of evangelical Arminianism, evangelical Lutheranism, and others. It would seem that if these two premises are held, 
that God and God alone saves by the working of his grace immediately upon the human heart and that he works equally in all men alike, then all men alike will be saved without exception. The conclusion is unavoidable unless one or or the other of the premises is relaxed in some way. Scripture speaking so plainly on this matter, precious few evangelicals have been willing to claim that all men are in fact saved. Instead, they draw back to a position which allows for a universalistic work on God's part, which yet issues in a particularistic result. God alone works in salvation, according to these, but all that he does is directed indiscriminately to all men. It would seem necessary, therefore, either to affirm that the critical and decisive move in salvation belongs not to God, but to men, in which case we have fallen from evangelicalism to naturalistic autosoterism, or that the operations of God's saving grace are not universal, but individual. We cannot affirm both unless we are willing to embrace outright universalism. Consistent evangelicalism and consistent universalism can coexist only if we are prepared to assert the salvation by God's almighty grace of all men without exception. The hesitancy on the part of some evangelicals to ascribe a thoroughgoing particularism to God in the distribution of his grace is widespread. Evangelical Arminianism affirms that salvation ultimately depends on the exercise of human will. Evangelical Lutheranism affirms the efficacy of baptism in communicating regenerating grace, a grace which is left to the individual to take advantage of, cooperate with, and act upon. The naturalistic, semi-Pelagian, and sacerdotal tendencies are evident. In neither case of these cases is salvation construed as monergistic. Further, in neither is salvation given. It is only made available. Salvation is made available and left to man either to resist or not, to take advantage of or not. It is the opportunity of salvation that's given freely to all. The result then is that God does not save all men, he saves none. He only opens a way of salvation to all, and if any are saved, they must if any are saved, they must save themselves. What God does toward the salvation of one, he does for all. He does not actually save by himself alone, nor is his work individualistic. And so Warfield asks, where then is our evangelicalism? Universalistic notions seem to be driven by the assumption that God owes salvation equally to all men, that it would be unfair for him to favor a few. And that sin is not really sin deserving of wrath, but rather misfortune deserving of pity. That is a low view of sin. Warfield illustrates the difference between a doctor and a judge. We might fault a doctor, he says, who, although he is able to relieve a sickness in all, actually relieves only some. Yet we may wonder how a judge could release any guilty offender at all. Likewise, God in his love does pity and save, but he is righteous as well as loving. Accordingly, God in love saves only as many as he can get the consent of his whole nature to save. God will not permit even his ineffable love to betray him into any action which is not right. We might sympathize with the leveling tendencies of politics, freedom for all, rights for all, education for all, and so on. The cry from a nation's citizenship to its government to give all an equal chance is one thing. But the turbulent self-assertion of convicted criminals demanding clemency is quite another. We must fix it firmly in our minds, Warfield insists, that salvation is the right of no one and that a chance to save oneself is no chance of salvation for any and that if any at all is saved, it must be by a miracle of divine grace on which no one has any claim whatever. All this is so designed that any who are saved can only be filled with wondering adoration of the marvels of the inexplicable love of God. Indeed, Warfield continues to demand that all criminals shall be given a chance of escaping their penalties, that all should be given an equal chance, is simply to mock at the very idea of justice and no less at the very idea of love. In all of this, 
The decisive factor in salvation is transferred from God to men, whether naturalistically or sacerdotally, and the evangelical principle of dependence upon God alone for salvation is lost. The parting of the ways remains here. Certainly, only he can claim to be evangelical who with full consciousness rests entirely and directly on God and God alone for his salvation. Calvinists contend that supernaturalism and salvation, the immediacy of divine work, and the evangelical description soli deo gloria all demand particularism. At bottom, what divides particularists from inconsistent universalists is just whether the saving grace of God in which alone is salvation actually saves. Does its presence mean salvation? Or may it be present and yet salvation fail? If it is God himself who acts to save individual men apart from inter intermediaries, and if all the glory must be ascribed to him for it, we're left to see that he is selective in his saving work. Roland Thomas Chafer, brother of Lewis Berry Chafer, studied under Warfield at Princeton. And he reports that it was a favorite classroom saying of the late B.B. Warfield that all theologies divide at one point. Does God save men or do they save themselves? This is Warfield's sustained argument in his The Plan of Salvation. If supernaturalism, then Christianity. Christianity in its biblical and historic expression and Christianity in its deepest evangelical and reformed piety and most profound sense of dependence upon God. Returning now to his doctrine of the decree specifically, in summary, Warfield summarizes his doctrine of the decree. In one word, the sovereignty of the divine will as the principle of all that comes to pass is a primary postulate of the whole religious life as well as of the entire worldview of the Bible. It is implicated in the very idea of God, its whole conception of the relation of God to the world and to the changes which take place, whether in nature or history among the nations of the life fortunes of the individual and also in its scheme of religion, whether national or personal. It lies at the basis of all the religious emotions and lays the foundation of the specific type of religious character built up in Israel through the Bible, uh, throughout the Bible, behind the processes of nature, the march of history and the fortunes of each individual alike. There is steadily kept in view the governing hand of God working out his preconceived plan, a plan broad enough to embrace the whole universe of things, and minute enough to concern itself with the smallest details, and actualizing itself with inevitable certainty in every event that comes to pass. In short, he says, the subject of the decree is God. The object of the decree is the whole universe and all that is in it. And the end or goal of the decree is his own praise. Now, finally, uses and the importance of the doctrine quickly. Warfield is eager to clarify the difference between this doctrine of God's all-inclusive decree and fatalism. And to accomplish this, he retells at length the story about a young Dutch boy. This little boy's home was on a dike in Holland near a great windmill whose long arms swept so close to the ground as to endanger those who carelessly strayed under them. But he was very fond of playing precisely under this mill. His anxious parents had forbidden him to go near it, and when his stubborn will did not give way, had sought to frighten him away from it by arousing his imagination to the terror of being struck by the arms, carried up into the air to have the life beaten out of him by the ceaseless strokes of the windmill. One day, Heedless of their warning, he strayed again under the dangerous arms of the windmill and soon was absorbed in his play there, forgetful of everything but his pleasant pleasures. Perhaps he was half conscious of a breeze springing up somewhere in the depth of his soul. He may have been obscurely aware of the danger which had been threatened. At any rate, suddenly as he played, he was violently smitten from behind and found himself swung up all at once with his head downward into the air, up and up. And then the blows came, swift and hard, one after another. What a sinking of the heart. What a horror of great darkness. It had come then, and he was gone. In his terrified writhing, he twisted himself about, and looking up, he saw not the immeasurable expanse of the brazen heavens above him, but his father's face. At once he realized with great revulsion that he was not caught in the windmill, but was only receiving the threatened punishment of his disobedience. 
He melted into tears, not of pain, but of relief and joy. And in that moment, he understood the difference between falling into the grinding power of a machine and into the loving hands of a father. That, Warfield adds, is the difference between fate and predestination. And all the language of men cannot tell the immensity of the difference. And it is here that Warfield finds the value of the doctrine of the divine decree and our understanding of it. The difficulties that arise from the doctrine of predestination arise chiefly from our natural unwillingness to acknowledge ourselves to be wholly at the disposal of another. But Warfield is eager to point out that such unwillingness is misguided and not at all in our own best interest. Do we really not care whether it be the everlasting arms or merely our own weak arms that we rest on in all of our Christian life? Do we really not care for the confident certainty of knowing that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will? What comfort can be derived from a God, infinitely caring though he may be, who stands impotent over the course of the world and life events, watching from all eternity things that he does not wish to happen, seeing them coming, ever coming, until at last they come and he's unable to stop them? Would we really prefer chaos to order? To deny God's all-sovereign control over all things is to do away with God altogether and leave us to the uncertain fate of our own making. So much better this doctrine of the divine decree in which we can rest, which inevitably evokes in us a deep sense of grateful dependence upon God. And so much better this assurance that despite appearances, there is stretched beneath us the everlasting arms of the Almighty Father, working all things together for the good of those he has called according to his purpose. In this doctrine we have provided for us, Warfield says, the whole ground of our trust and hope. It establishes all that gives us a right as individuals to trust in the saving grace of God alone for its for the inception, continuance, and completion of our salvation, and all that gives us a right to trust in God, the governor of the universe. Commenting on Romans 8.28, he counsels, the fundamental thought is the universal government of God. All that comes to pass, all that comes to you, is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those whom he, to whom he would do good. The consolation lies in the shelter which we may thus find beneath his mighty arms. That is to say, here in the doctrine of the universal providence of God, we learn that all is well with the world. And in that realization, we may rest confidently here we learn with grateful adoration that our eternal salvation depends absolutely on the infinite love and undeserved favor of God. And here we come to worship God aright. Contemplation of this doctrine enhances our conception of God and strengthens our fundamental confession, soli Deo Gloria. A deep realization of this truth drives us to a firm dependence upon divine mercy and that highest and purest expression of religion, prayer. Here, the plummet is let down to the bottom of the Christian confidence and hope. It is because we cannot be robbed of God's providence that we know, amid whatever encircling gloom, that all things shall work together for good to those that love him. Here, in a word, is the solution of all earthly 